Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. Today, we will be answering your questions regarding coaching and training. Yeah, it's our bread and butter. Obviously, we're both uh, coaches ourselves, and we just are so passionate about training. So we love answering your questions when it comes to these two topics. I feel like we we say that for every question that now we're actually modeling our podcast based on your guys' questions. So rather than us sort of coming up with a topic, we've gotten that many questions in the DMs that now we can actually stem our episodes from it. But we thought we'd be a little bit organized and categorize them. That's mm. probably more of or more of my style coming out there, but I think it works well. So thank yeah. you guys. I was thinking about it the other day, like as much as I love Instagram, like it's it's created to be instant. And when I get a question, I'm like, oh, like I could talk about this for an hour. There's no way yeah. I can summarize this in 15 seconds. So hence Literally. the creation of the podcast, I guess, so that we can elaborate on these topics. Yeah, because I've noticed now in some of your swipe ups, you're like, listen to me talk about it for 47 minutes. Swipe <laughs> up to the podcast. How good is that though? Because you don't want to give someone a shitty answer, particularly no. if it's such an in-depth topic. And now the questions that we're getting are really in-depth. So yeah. it's cool to be able to just, yep, refer to the podcast if you want to hear more. So much on Instagram is oversimplified, right? Like I want to be able to give an answer, but then my brain is going, you know, 50 miles an hour being like, yeah, but what if they're doing this? And then I wonder Mm. about that. And, you know, context is so important when it comes to questions. Um, So that's why we love being able to sit here and really elaborate on them. So let's get into it, Danny. Yeah, but first we've, someone's taken the crown on the most amount of minutes streamed. Like last week was in the 2000s. And again, thank you to everyone. Uh, but someone came across with a tag uh, for the Spotify, you know, uh, yearly, what's it called? I don't know, where Spotify just um, told us the summary of your top podcasts. And now we've got Evelyn Killeen, 3,857 minutes of our voices streamed. So I, you take the crown. That's insane. Can I just, what? so there is, I've just got my calculator. calculator out. So there is 60 minutes in an hour, right? Yeah. And there Eight, is five, seven. 24 hours in a day. Yeah. So there is 1,440 minutes in a day. So she's been sitting down for like three or four days. Wow. <laughs> when you put it like that, that is epic. Yeah. Everyone else needs to step up your game. No, that's level up, guys. Level <laughs> up. Well done, Evelyn. You're a legend. Big shout out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now let's get into the, um, our first topic. So yep. we really wanted to be able to um, have a bit of a conversation about online coaching versus face-to-face coaching. Mm, yeah. So this first question from Miss Taurus G, online coach versus face-to-face for intermediate level. How to choose which is the best option? Mm. Yeah. And when you think about intermediate levels, so I really want to be able to separate training experience from training age, because there are people that have been training in the gym for 10 or 15 years that are still beginners. And I will never forget, like when I used to train um, at this gym in Ballarat, like this little country gym, there was this one guy there, right? And he always used to hog the Smith machine, but he trained like five, six days a week and did the exact same thing. And I used to watch him and like, I was training there for a couple of years. He did not make any physical progress because he just did the same stuff over and over again. And that is the definition of perhaps having a high training age, but a low training experience. 
Yeah, that's right. So I feel like everyone who's starting out for the first year or, or even two, really depending on how quick you progress, needs someone face-to-face because you just need to have someone there looking at you, teaching you all the movement patterns. Um, yeah, so if someone ever comes to me and they're just starting out, I don't take them in straight away online. I'm like, look, just learn what it's like to have, have someone there face-to-face with you so then you can feel confident in all the movements. Um, mm. Yeah. Even that, look, and then of course the rebuttal is, well, it costs more. Yeah, but what costs more? A little bit of face-to-face training at the start with a great trainer where you can learn the skills or being a couple of years down the track with an injury and and being like the guy on the Smith machine, you haven't seen any progress. So (laughs) invest at the start. Yeah. And it's such a funny conversation because both, you know, you and I know, Danny, you know, there's no such thing as it's too expensive. It's just that I don't put the value in it. Yep. And as you said, like what's more expensive because a shitty coach is expensive as well. So in the long term, like you said, injury, that's expensive. Mm. Um, so it is coming down to, you know, face to face is invaluable. And I think everyone can benefit from that at the start of their journey. And I'm very similar to you, Danny. Like I like people to have at least six months gym experience moving around, fluffing around. And as you said, that first year, you really are just like getting in pieces of equipment and trying things out. And I think that's important to be able to do that, to experiment. And then you're like, oh, I'm starting to take this a bit more seriously. Maybe I'll just get some in-person stuff done. And I had that, um, I had in-person for about, literally six months like yep. I had one strength and conditioning session um, a week with a coach yep. just to refine my deadlifts refine my squat patterns and I learned so much in that period of time mm. um, it was really invaluable for me so yep. even though I paid you know the equivalent of even probably more than what an online coach would be a week for an hour's session mm. like it was like an internship almost yep it um, is an internship for sure you learn what to do and then even if you're a trainer I feel like every trainer should have some face-to-face experience because a lot of people jump straight to being an online coach without even having someone coach them face-to-face mm. at all. So it's a whole nother ball game being an online coach to be able to cue someone from a computer screen. You need to have done the time face-to-face, not only as a client, but then also as a coach as well, because you just, you get to put your hands on your pay on your clients and just see where they're at and, and interact and people skills and body language. It's, it's so important to nail. And some people are scared of the gym at the start. Most people are like, so if you're a little bit resistant to use a piece of equipment, I don't think an online coach is the right answer. You know, you want to be confident to be able to use free weights or get or go out of the women's room. You know, remember people, they're like, oh, I kind of still hide in the women's gym, which yeah. now the women's gym's fully decked out the same as the man's gym. So they don't really use those terms anymore. But I remember back in the day, you used to always say that, like, yeah, just go in the women's gym. They like, still have them. They still have them. Like at yeah, my home, hometown, the seated abduction is in the women's room. Mm. And I'm like, what? So the men don't have to worry about abduction. <laughs> they need to work those glutes. <laughs> But in regards to the question, so online coaching versus face-to-face for an intermediate level, I think, you know, if you're intermediate, you probably would have ideally had some face-to-face, whether that's a few sessions, a handful of sessions or whatever it might be. Um, I would say online coaching is reserved for people who are self-motivated or who are willing to do the work, who are coachable to begin with as well. Mm. And who already have six, 12, six to 12 months sort of training experience under the belt. Yeah, yeah. But then as 
us, whatever we want to call ourselves, you know, intermediate or advanced. I know you don't like calling yourself advanced, but I want to call you advanced, but you can shake your head and say no. (laughs) Or for whatever we are, I've got both. But I'm obsessed with getting coaches for everything as a you, you know, well, mentors, coaches, whatever you want to call it. I've got people face-to-face. Whenever I go for like not a one RM, but pretty close to uh, one RM type lifts, I always call someone at the gym to come watch me or like help me just because I love having that. I love that feedback. But then I've got an online coach as well. So Mm -hmm. you don't really always have to choose. Um, but yeah, if you're sort of starting out, definitely face to face as you, your confidence and skill level increases and you earn the right for an online coach, then try that. But at the end of the day, it also depends on how good your coach is at the same Mm. time. So do your homework and just try. Try both. Really? That's a really great point, Danny. Um, when it comes to coaches. So I think as well, a lot of people have an expectation of an online coach that they're going to be able to be fantastic at everything. Mm. And I think it's really important to know, like a lot of coaches are amazing generalists and they have like, you know, they're a mixed bag. They can give lots of advice. They have lots of resources and lots of tools in their toolbox. Um, but it's really important to, you know, have your expectations on point and be okay with investing in other areas as well. So, yep. you know, and um, Luke put this perfectly to me because um, I've been seeking out um, other people to help me for this comp prep. Um, he sort of explained to me like- Who have you? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I've been dabbling in some other areas that I need to, you know, outsource because we, right. all, we all do. Um, Fantastic. So he was like, you know, well, NBA players, you know, they don't just have like one coach. Mm. They have a coach for this and then a coach for that. And and for me, you know, I'll have I'll have a posing coach and then mm. I'll probably have someone help me with my training and then I'll have someone help me with my nutrition. And it's yep. okay to outsource other areas. Um, I myself even have um, clients who have an in-person PT as well. Like yeah. they train with someone. And I think that's freaking amazing. You invest yep. your money however you want to. Yep. Fantastic. And it's all about working as a team, like similar to you, you know, I work in with other practitioners or other face-to-face coaches. And I think it's great. We need more of that. Too many people want to just hold on to their clients and not share them around. It's like, no, the more hands on deck, you know, with good communication, the better. Sometimes it can be a little bit much if they're conflicting, but you know, you and I are all about communication um, and putting our client first. So yeah, there's no reason why you have to limit yourself to one. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I guess a lot of in-person trainers, I don't know, like I worked as a, um, a PT for only about 12, 18 months, yep. but um, it's not common practice to do like all programming. Like they might do your session with you. So you can very well have online coaching who does your programming throughout the week. And then you can have your technique based session as well with an in-person trainer. There's nothing yep. wrong with having both. Yep. Cool. Mm. All right, let's move on. Um, So next question by Linda O'Donnell is, is it best to spread workouts throughout the week or get it done early? Mm, So I think when it comes to your training, the number one thing you have to make sure of is that you're actually going to get it done. Mm. What's what? Yeah. The rest of the variables, (laughs) just get it done. The rest of the variables depend on your lifestyle, your compliance, you know, Um, personally, after the weekend, having a day off on Sunday, uh, I put my big training sessions on Monday. If Yeah, I've just worked that out. But then for me personally, I wouldn't do 
five days in a row without rest because you just cook yourself. So Mm. I think it's important to spread it out during the week, no matter what number you have. But in saying that, if you're the type of person who's really tired by Friday and your Friday session is just no good, you're probably better off having it a little bit earlier anyway. Yeah. I always encourage people to break up their training week. Mm. Um, usually two or three days is sort of a maximum that I'll encourage for in a row. I think there needs to be a rest day because it's not just about muscle soreness. It's not just about DOMS. It's also about recovery from like, you know, a central nervous system perspective as well. Um, And I just think, you know, you want to be getting the most out of your sessions. So that could be the difference between being able to drop a training day to get more out of the workouts that you're doing. So Think about your time commitment on that sort of sense. If you can get more out of what you're doing in the gym, then why not prioritize it like that? Yeah. Rather than just being like, oh, I'm just going to get this done Monday to Thursday and then I have to worry about it. It's mm. like, you know, break it up. I like to do um, I like break up body parts, like do lower upper rest, yep. lower upper rest. I don't yep. like doing any more than two or three days. Even by that, like that third day, like I'm gassed. Yeah. Um, nervous system wise like mm. i just don't have the same output and that's why when it comes to prioritizing your workouts as well like you know perhaps having your most um strenuous uh training day at the start of the week like what you said daddy you know having your squats or your deadlifts or your compounds or whatever um and then sort of reducing it and that is the only reason why i sometimes use um undulated periodization so you oh, yeah. have a heavy moderate light it's really mm-hmm. overcomplicated, but that's the way you sort of can think about your week yeah for sure and then things to come into consideration like your work roster or if you have kids and all of that so then you have to work out well yes a monday might be ideal but then if monday's your busiest work day and you're a bit stressed and and you'd have to rush your workout then push it forward to Tuesday or even train on the Sunday. So really manipulate your schedule based on, all right, let's just say I've got a big leg day. I need more time for that. I don't want to rush through it. Okay. I'll do it on a day that I'm not working or I'm not with the kids as long or something like that. Yeah. Mm. It's important. Absolutely. I am such a big fan of like auto-regulation with your training because I did it for years. I did it for years. Mm. And when I didn't do it I got injured because yep. you know there's no point in trying to like force yourself to do sessions that your body is so resistant to it's really important to listen to your body because our body doesn't know it's Monday just know sunrise and sunset and recovery mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like when I say do your heavier session at the start of the week I mean do your heavier session when you're most recovered yeah you've got the most amount of um you know option to to recover from that exact training session and usually monday is ideal because we've had sunday off but that may not be the case for you no and then let's just say you did get it done early monday to friday what are you going to do on the weekend go out have a few drinks maybe big meals you're better off probably having a training session on that day you know it doesn't yeah so it really just depends on your schedule yeah hope that answers the question but we'll move on to the next one anyways sweet all right fitness by kb no training for one year, recovering from breast cancer. Is it a good idea to get movement patterns reassessed before starting back at the gym? So first of all, congratulations on your recovery and sending you lots of love during such a difficult time. And I hope it was okay that we read your name out. Uh, but thank you for the awareness because this uh, topic is very close to home. You know, my mum went through breast cancer as well, probably about seven years ago. Uh, so, and, and lots of people, I'm sure a lot of people know someone who has, so thank you for the question and all the best with your recovery, uh, to answer your question. 
Yes, from any time off or even when starting, it is important to get your movements assessed. And when you have perhaps some sort of surgery or something, your body changes. You have different compensatory patterns in the uh, body. You have a little bit of muscle guarding, let's just say for someone, I'm not sure if this person did, but for someone who had a mastectomy or something, there's a lot of scar tissue at the front of the body and your posture can change. Mm. Uh, so it's really important from, from any time off or surgery or change in your life, it is nice to sort of regress, get your foundations right, as we always talk about, um, see where you're at, what you need to work on, and then build from that. Mm. Yeah, really, really good advice there, Danny. And I think um, like what you said, when it comes to having any surgery or, you know, lymph nodes removed or anything, it's really important that you have someone watch over you, um, if, especially if you're concerned. Like I don't think you would have asked this question if you weren't concerned. Um, and just mm. make sure as well that you're telling your trainer, just being like, you know, look, I've had this procedure done, like whether you had surgery or chemo or whatever, like give them um, a bit of a background as well so that they know what to look out for because, you know, in regards to training chest as well, like obviously Danny and I both have implants, right? It's the same as when we returned back to training ourselves. We were extra cautious. We weren't just going to like, you know, go into our max PR bench press. Mm, like mm. it's really important to take your time, strengthen all those other muscles around the shoulder blades and, and all those st stabilizing muscles in your core and everything as well. Yep. It's not just about getting back in and training your chest. It's about mm. how does the chest interact or talk to the rest of our body because no muscle just moves in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. And then having a year off for anyone as well. Uh, there's definitely, I don't know, it depends what you did on that year off as well. Your body would have molded to the lack of movement and, and exercise. So uh, rather than going to a personal trainer for an assessment for that, I'd probably go to, you know, some sort of health professional, osteophysio, someone like that, exercise physiologist, get um, a diagnosis or anything if you want, uh, and then pass it on to the trainer, I'd say, mm, mm, particularly yeah. for something like that, actually. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Really good advice. Uh, so we'll move on. Um, this one is from Michelle Lynn. I can't pronounce it. Come this. on, read it. This is a <laughs> long one. I'm glad you got it. Michelle Lynn Hernara Z. So. Michelle Lynn Hernandez with two Zs. Cool. Yeah. We were saying you'd hate to be logged out of your Instagram app every time you have to log that one in or filling out <laughs> one of those multiple choice uh, question forms. Oh. It'll take up the whole exam time. They get me every time. And yeah. it's like, click the boxes where the car is. It takes me about 10 minutes to get through those. But sometimes some of them don't have the object. That's what I've realized. I'm like, where are the crosswalks? Where are the bicycles? <laughs> I can't find them. Oh, that's the answer. But do you know what? That is so deceiving. It's yeah. like multiple choice. It's like, you know, we're not trying to trick you. It's like bullshit. You're not yeah. trying to chip me. <laughs> it's the same thing. Why Why would, anyways, sorry, um, Michelle. So I had up uh, on my story talking about, um, I can't remember what I was talking about. I was talking about cardio and I was talking about how like we shouldn't be using cardio as a fat loss tool as such. Mm. Um, so Michelle's asked, how is cardio not for fat loss? And I really wanted to be able to elaborate on this because I think it's really important to understand that when we're looking at calories in and calories out, it's really not as black and white as that. So no. obviously we can measure the calories in, which comes from nutrition, the calories out, you know, like 90% of the calories out is made up of our neat levels. So um, that our neat levels are like our steps, as well as our fidgeting, me throwing my hand around me standing <laughs> here. It's our non involuntary sort of activity throughout the day. Yeah. Cardio or planned activity uh, is a very small percentage of that calorie out target. 
And I think, you know, you see on Instagram, sh- like workout to shred and like all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's just false advertisement. It's not yep. true. And there's been lots of studies that have been done about cardio for fat loss for a body composition standpoint. So people that are training um, or bodybuilding and then adding in cardio. And what they sort of conclude for a lot of these studies is that if you spend half an hour, an hour on a treadmill, incline treadmill, and you burn, say, 400 calories, your neat levels will reduce by 400 calories throughout the day and you'll yeah, be fidgeting less blinking slower like all these sorts of things that you think well like no way could that happen it's Mm. so true and what something to think about as well if you're spending an hour on the treadmill that is an hour out of your day that you're awake walking around washing the dishes how many mm. calories do you think you would have spent washing the dishes, putting your clothes away, you know, going to the supermarket? You yeah. could have spent 200 calories in that hour, right? Yeah. So now you've only burnt an extra 200 calories on the treadmill. So, and you still got dishes in the sink. And you still Bloody got hell. dishes in the sink. So <laughs> I guess all I want from this is like, yes, look, if you're running marathons and you're burning through tens and thousands of calories and not replacing them, you're going to lose body fat, probably muscle. But it's yeah. not a tool that should be solely used for fat loss. It needs to mostly come from your nutrition. And yeah, I would love to get someone on here to be able to talk about. Um, we have you know, Luke and Holly's been talking about metabolic adaptation. Yeah, but I mean, like, how to periodize a program, um, like aerobic activity, like cardiovascular wise. How yeah. do we use cardio as a good tool to be able to increase our actual fitness, which is what we should be using it for? Yeah, because HIIT training, if, I'd say. I think yeah. HIIT training you definitely can use for fat loss, but again, there's so many variables in it. Your body is less likely to adapt to HIIT training, but then you don't want to always do it because it's very stressful on the body too. So it could be a catch 22. Now we're not here to say don't do cardio because you and I love our walks. I love going for a walk now. It's just part of my routine morning and evening. But then I also said earlier off air, well, maybe being out walking for an hour means less time away from no more time away from the fridge. So indirectly it can, it can work as well. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, or if you catch up, for a walk with a friend instead of a meal or instead Mm. of drinks. So it's still a tool for the mind as well. Yes, it gets things pumping and flowing and and all of that, but I wouldn't, yeah, as you said, take it to be the number one option for fat loss. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's different as well. See me, I don't categorize steps as, as cardio. I just never have. I just feel like that's daily activity. So, you know, absolutely. If you're planning your daily activity and going for steps, like cardio is for health it's Mm. for health. It's not for body composition. And that's not the way I like to look at it. Mm. Um, when it comes to high intensity training as well, like that's very much sort of the same energy system as weightlifting. So yeah. it's sort of a different ballpark. And, you know, it's not just about burning calories on the treadmill and looking at your watch and being like, oh, yeah, I've burnt 12,000 calories, um, 1,200 calories today. Mm. And, mm. you know, it's just, it's inconsistent data and it's really hard yeah. to track. Yeah, yeah. There's so much to it. Cause I mean, in lockdown, when we hardly, I hardly did any steps because it was raining as well. Mm. Like you didn't want to be outside. So some days I'd get like 4,000 steps, like, but then even just being up and about walking around the shops, putting more walks in, I have noticed changes in my body composition, but mm. it might not just be from the cardio. I mean, I'm eating better. I'm less stressed now. Mm. So there is a lot in it, but naturally people think, oh, it must be 
the walks, but it's a hard topic. It's a, because it's so good for the mind and the soul and you feel fresh, you digest a little bit better. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, but that's awesome because that's what we should be doing cardio for. Mm. That's exactly right. I don't want people flogging themselves on a bike because they think they're going to drop body fat from yeah. just doing that. You know, you get on the bike because you want to improve your endurance and, and that's going to bleed over into your training and your recovery mm. and your sleep and your respiratory rate and all these other sorts of processes that cardio is super beneficial for. Yeah. Um, and I think vast majority of people do flog cardio because they want to drop body fat, mm. not because of those reasons. Yeah. So it is really important to be able to distinguish between the two. And Danny, as you and I go into a comp prep, you know, it's it's almost like a bit of a different scenario as well because calories are going to get extremely low for us. So mm. it's it's a fine line, but for majority of people, I really um, I encourage them to get majority of their results from the nutrition side of things, like ninety five percent of it maintain neat levels so that's why in isolation it was hard for us because our, like my neat would dropped like a hundred percent yeah absolutely <laughs> so and that's why like during that time as well I was still dieting for the um the WBFF show yeah and I had to exit that diet because I was like I'm eating low calories mm. I'm getting 2,000 steps in my neat is through the roof down mm. you know mm. way up your options here so yeah that in terms of the cardio discussion, it's a sort of a different situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only did cardio in every prep. My cardio only ramps up maybe the last four weeks or three weeks. Like, yeah. but the rest is from nutrition, training, making sure I'm sleeping, making sure I'm not too stressed. And then, all right, we'll add in a little bit of heat training. Yeah. And that's how normally it goes. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I've never really been able to do cardio and prep. So that'll be fun this year. Yeah, no, nah, because your steps are always through the roof. So it'll be interesting this time around. Oh, mm-hmm. can't wait. Can't I know, wait. Comp, comp prep series. Yeah, we'll make a separate series for our comp prep. So um, all the, the questions regarding that, shoot them through. We'll pop them in different episodes. That'll be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. This next one is from Lynn 4 And she asks, why are so many IG famous PTs telling you to do posterior pelvic tilt in hip thrusts? Now, for those of you who don't know what posterior pelvic tilt is, it is sort of scooping the pelvis or arching your lower back uh, where your lower back kind of rounds, but you really get a a glute contraction there. Now, this topic's been floating around, particularly on my social media as well. I think it all stemmed from the amazing glute guru who invented the hip thrust, which is great. And we're not here to take away from anyone and their efforts and their, you know, everyone's amazing at what they do in a sense. However, things need to be considered. So if one person comes up with a concept that deems, you know, to be quite successful, then other PTs learn from people. And it's just a case of Chinese whispers and one person does it. So then everyone does it. Now, from my experience and the people who I've been working with, uh, rather than just being glute specialists, I align with back specialists. And the thing is, when you perform posterior pelvic tilt, it replicates the same as a butt wink. So rounding of the lower back in a squat because the pelvis, by tilting it like that, yes, you might get amazing glute contraction and activation. However, your lower back rounds. And what we know is the discs actually don't like that. 
at all because it puts pressure and the discs can, disc fluid can migrate backwards and that's when we can get herniations and pain. Uh, so from a lower back specialist point of view, ideally what we need is a hip hinge. So zero movement from the spine. So a nice neutral spine when performing the hip thrust, because yes, with zero load, it's okay to have a rounded back because in everyday life, we bend down, we pick something up. You can have a rounded back if you're just picking up a small paper clip or something like that. But if you add the vertical load to your horizontal body and then round your lower back, Tuck, um, chuck a shit ton of weight on a barbell, hundreds of kilos. That's that's when lower back pain happens, and I see it a lot in the clinic. Um, mm. Yeah, what's your opinion on that, Cheryl? Yeah, it's really interesting, and I definitely learned with posteriorly pelvically tilting. It's such a mouthful. PPT, PPT, PPT. we'll call it. But um, in hindsight, when I look back now, what I was doing and what I find correcting a lot in myself um, coaching is I'm actually correcting um, anterior pelvic tilt, which is when you're going the opposite. So think of like that Kim Kardashian duck bum, that's mm. your um, anteriorly tilting. So mm. I was more so going from um, an anterior tilt to a neutral. Yep. Um, so me neurologically thinking scoop really scoop under drive was actually good for me um, because it it retrained that Uh, it wasn't it wasn't me going from a neutral spine to then really rounding under and Mm. I think what you'll find is like when you cue too much like it actually makes you weaker in a lot of exercises if you have the right setup and you get into a machine and everything's right biomechanically your body will move the way it should Mm. when we start coaching too much and and giving out weird sort of cues and stuff it can be confusing for your brain and your your muscles to communicate with each other so the way that i sort of do it now is obviously assessing people like some people do have a big anterior tilt but i don't tell them that be like oh you're screwed up you know we need no, to make no. sure we do it like this i just put them in, in good pieces of equipment and give them a few sort of cues and see how they move and then adjust accordingly so it's right. going to be um individualized but when it comes to um adding huge amounts of load and this is probably where it gets a bit different you know you're not laying on the floor with a band doing 500 reps with no mm. load like that's mm. fine go for it. it but when you're playing with a big barbell it's probably a different case because like Danny said um you know it's about what where is that pressure going as yeah. well um yeah so you know it's it's it is context dependent um I just don't teach heaps of PPT to extreme cases. I just look at the individual and what they need. And to be honest, I don't really use a barbell much anymore. I use a glute drive uh, and it's virtually impossible to um, go into really um, posteriorly tilting with that because you've got this big, thick belt on you uh, and I modify it. So I've completely changed the way that I hit thrust. I really do almost like a bridge um but on the machine if that makes sense because i don't want to get a lot of knee traction or a lot of movement at the knees i just really want to isolate the glutes um and i can load up heavy because when it comes to like getting strong we get strong in the range that we train so Mm. i really want to get super strong in that hip extension movement so i can overload the glutes to their full capacity i do not care what they're like under eccentrically at the bottom when my quads are stretched Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and when it comes to this, you're better off just not teaching it wrong at all in the first place. So I really love that you highlighted that you go from a bit of an anterior tilt to neutral. So whether you want to use the word scoop or whether you want to, I use tuck the ribs down 
Um, yep. But then it just depends on how much they're scooping or how much they're tucking mm. down. So they need to do it in a way that will bring them to neutral, not in a rounded or flexed lower back. That's the main thing. Now, yes, we can get away with it, not under load, but there's no point learning it poorly and then trying to learn it correctly once we're adding load. Learn it mm. probably from the first part. Do your hip thrust as a hip hinge because that directly translates into your deadlift movements, into your mm. squat movements, into your Romanian deadlift movements, into every other movement really. Um, and it is safer on your lower back that way. It, it burns my eyes to see, which, you know, ignorance is bliss. And I used to do it too, where down the bottom, the ribs are flared and the lower back oh, is really fuck. squashed down. And we've got uneven forces through the back. So when your ribs are flared down the bottom of it, you're compressing your lower back, which sometimes it's okay. Under load, it's not okay. And then you're coming up and really rounding. And there's just so much movement through the lower back, back and mm. forth, that no wonder people have back pain on hip thrusts. So mm. keep the force is even from the front and the back of your spine which is a neutral spine with a nice brace that you you still will get glute activation but you save your lower back and that's mm. what we want yeah and yeah and that's a really good cue that's one that i use is um thinking about doing an abdominal crunch and how that you really do pull those lower ribs down to your hip bones mm. not your hip bones up it's about ribs sort of down and keeping that down and the stronger that you get in any sort of movement the more that you could th these sorts of things are really do become important and i know that like on a hip thrust for example like i need to create internal stability i need to grow onto those handles i need to brace hard yep. i need to have that belt in the perfect position like everything needs to be lined up so you can mm. get away with some of these sorts of things and perhaps not feel a difference or not notice a difference when you're not using a heavy load or you're just using a band or whatever it might be yeah. um, but as you get more advanced and stronger in a lot of these movements you know you do have to sort of start thinking of this stuff yeah, yeah. And for all the amazing trainers listening, please start teaching uh, your clients a hip hinge in their thrust. You mm. know, uh, don't worry about what IG famous quote unquote people are doing. Uh, it's really about, all right, use the science, use evidence and be smart with your programming and training. You know, you want your clients to stay pain free and injury free as well, um, as well as getting amazing glutes. So mm. that's how you do it. Hip hinge your thrusts. Yeah. And just as well, like I think a lot of people do these sorts of things because they can feel it more yeah. and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's doing more. Mm -mm. So it's really important to be able to remove that and be like, oh yeah, but it burns. And it's like, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> a, a, a herniated disc burns as well, I bet. So <laughs> far out. Yeah. Not ideal uh, to gauge that. Be cool. safe. Good question. Uh, do you want to read out the next one? Yes, yeah, so Miss Mal Martin, 14, best exercises to build bigger delts. And what's your mantra that you say, Sherelle? I don't know. There's no best? No, what is oh. it? <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, what do I, I don't say? Know. What do I say? Um, I don't know what the mantra is, but there is no such thing as the best yeah, exercise. Yeah, that's it. That's what I mean. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. No, um, that's all right. There is no best exercise for building any muscle. Mm. Um, it just comes down to like where you're at, for who and what for, but I will say, like, I do have some favorites when it comes to delts. Like, yep. I always prioritize abduction work. And you'll probably um, think of this as well. I treat the delts very much like the glutes in terms of, like, how I trade them, like a lot of extension, a lot of abduction, yep. um, lots of cable work, lots of fluffy stuff as well mm. for the delts, which is, I think, my personally have responded really well to. Um, yep. 
I structure my upper bodies a bit differently to what I used to when I'm sort of like bodybuilding, I guess, Mm -hmm. and focusing on hypertrophy. I almost flip them. So perhaps what I would have started um, or finished my session with, I start now. So like lateral raises and like face pulls and rear delts and all that sort of stuff. It's a great way for me to like build into a warm up as well. It sort of acts as both. And then I do like overhead pressing and more compounds towards the end of my workout. Great. But I probably wouldn't give that to a beginner because I want them to develop good movement patterns at the start and Mm. earn that right to be able to train like a bodybuilder. Well, you've got a good point there. If you want to look at it from a point of you doing the smaller exercises as a warm-up or activation, that's brilliant because that takes away from the upper traps dominating or the lats dominating or the pecs dominating. So I think it's really cool to do those smaller exercises first, whether you do them higher reps, lighter weight, like an activation or jump on the cables like what you do. uh, I feel like it's actually really good. Now, when it comes to a beginner, yeah, you don't want to burn them out too soon because then the other muscles will overcompensate anyway. But I feel like all of us should train the delts from all planes. So in front of you, to the side and behind. Uh, Good old shoulder big three. You can't go wrong lying face down and then arms by your side, bringing them back behind you 15 or so times. Turn your palms to the ceiling, same thing. And then arms out by your side in a T-shape, lifting up behind you. You know, everyone should be doing that exercise because we all sort of sit with our shoulders forward and to have that rear delt activation, but you're lying face down. So you're working with gravity. You don't get your traps dominating and you don't get all the other muscles dominating. So yeah, yeah, good point there with doing the smaller uh, exercises first. I think the battle is finding the exercises where your traps don't take over. That's yeah. been my, I, I'm, I'm a trapzilla. I'm better now, but like Same. most people are traps. Look at, yeah, traps are the gods. Look traps at that flex. City. I just want to grab it. Just want to grab that. <laughs> Into <laughs> a chunk of um, meat. <laughs> you know, I don't mind traps though. Like I, I don't, love them. I don't think they're like, you know, when you can do this one, you see a trap. Yeah. Like oh, shit. I don't. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just about, yes, your traps, like they shrug. So it's going to at the end sort of take over when you're getting close towards failure. But I used to struggle with um, rear delts a lot, training rear yeah. delts with, with um, sorry, not activating my traps too much. Yeah. Um, and I found like lots of elbow flaring seated rows are really good for me yep. Yep. rather than though that rear delt. Abandoned pull apart. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. The rear delt fly machine doesn't, I get all all traps on that I don't do it yeah. um I do more rowing variations with flared elbows you can even see me rear delts Lead jacking the, up there oh, mate we'll get this one on the IGTV you really <laughs> don't you dare oh no 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 it's not happening um but yeah so it, it really comes down to oh, something I do want to say as well is like you need to have abduction work to yeah. grow your deltoids because it's really important that, you know, when we're trying to grow muscle, we're just putting tension across muscle fibers. Yeah. And when you look at the striations of the deltoids and how they sort of fan out, mm-hmm. you know, it is important to do that abduction work. And yep. like I said, that fluffy stuff, you can push it hard and overhead press, you should not. So mm-hmm. it's really important to take all muscles to failure. But when I'm looking at like a bodybuilding styled perspective of training, I'm like, okay, well, what's a safe way that I can take the deltoids? isolate the medial deltoid and take that to failure without putting a lot of risk from like a say a heavy barbell overhead yeah. press which isn't very favorable for building the deltoids anyways so you get more front delt if it's in front of you 
Yeah, yeah, and then absolutely. a bit of chest. If you start leaning back under fatigue, you'll get a bit more chest. So you I always see you on your reels doing the lean away lateral raise. And that's brilliant because if we're standing upright and then we're we're more likely to get traps. If we're literally standing upright, uh, going mm. against gravity, and then if you pass that 90 degree mark or one like a straight arm, you'll get up a trap the higher you go. So you doing your lean away is brilliant. Use that mm. um, that angle there, which is cool. Yeah. And just a couple of hacks as well with the cables. Like I use an, um, an ankle cuff that you do kick, kickbacks with around um, my wrist so I can take the wrist flexors out of it. I still make sure that I include free weights so that I still get that stimulus, but yeah. I can go so much harder when I'm not holding on to a handle because my wrist uh, extensors fail first. Yeah, good um, tip. So using an ankle strap is really good. And then um, the other thing as well is understanding that cables sort of change the resistance profile or the strength curve of the actual load it's putting across the muscle fiber. So when you're holding onto a dumbbell, the hardest part is usually mid to top yeah. when you're holding a dumbbell. There's no tension when you're holding it at the bottom. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you put uh, use a cable, for example, it applies continuous tension it's across hard. the whole thing. It's yeah. hard. So it's hard even... But it's really good for failing a muscle. So oh, and yeah. it's safe to do so. It's safe to do so. So I'll have that as my A series sometimes. Absolutely. And what I do sometimes, because yeah, the cable's really hard. So then I have a band tied to the bottom of the cable too. So I do as much as I can on the cable and then have the same lean away angle and then grab the band and finish off with that. Mm. Mm. And then also on a bench, 45 degree angle, you're lying on your side your non-working mm. arms hanging over the edge and then your working arms across on the side of your body and then doing your lateral raise that way, bringing it up. It burns and you fatigue yeah. so quick. I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to training your delts as well, it's really important that you play around with angles that works best for you because everyone's going to have different sort of structures and, and like, you know, if you feel clicks and stuff like that, like adjust your rib cage and see if that makes a difference or adjust your grip or your hand angle or thumbs yeah. up or whatever. So it's really important to play around with what works because uh, you know our shoulder is the most mobile joint so we can train it through a lot of different angles and it's important that we do so for overall development yeah i think uh, everyone before training upper body needs to do some sort of external rotation activation so i mentioned the shoulder big three lying face down um, because again that takes the traps out but then even side lying dumbbell external rotation because most of us are very internally rotated so if you're smashing your shoulders with thumbs down that's shit on your shoulder mm. joint it's not good uh, can lead to impingements and things so start with some external rotation activation work and then get into your lateral raises you'll mm. notice that you'll probably stop clicking and and being sore when you raise your arm up mm. i don't coach thumbs up I do not coach thumbs up. I, I just coach like a neutral grip. For me personally, thumbs up works best for me. I get more range when I go thumbs up rather than that. It thumbs just down. Is un- you mean you don't coach thumbs down? You, you Sorry. Mean. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, thumbs down shit. It's very old school and a lot of yeah. people used to do it. No more thumbs down on a lateral raise. It, oh, yeah. God. People just keep coming in with sore shoulders. And then I literally test them and say, all right, cool. Now bring your thumbs up to the ceiling. And then they can bring their hands all the way up. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. You're just trying to like, you know, get blood out of a stone. It's not, it's not beneficial. So more often than not, I think everyone's taught, oh yeah, pinky up. Like, yes, we should be like sort of leading with our elbow, right? But for me, like just adjust your grip and play Mm -hmm. with what works best where you've got that range of motion. Yep. Fantastic. And then just, you know, taking it to near failure or failure when safe, the same principles that we've spoken about in Mm. some of the other episodes. Mm. Yeah. Good. 
All right. Back to uh, Siobhan Hattersley, who got an awesome shout out uh, two episodes ago now for all of the episodes that she's listened to. So do you need to be low in a squat? I feel my hips stop me. Mm. Now, everyone's different. We all have different femur lengths. We all have different hip socket depths. Uh, Some are internally rotated, some are externally rotated. Everyone's different. So the old knees out, ass to grass. Yes, it might work for a majority of people. However, for some, some people cannot. There's a bony lock. But from what I've seen uh, in most people, it's just because people's hip flexors are really dominant. Their knees are caving in too much and they're not actually giving themselves that space to actually sit down like how a baby would sit or people in other cultures would sit. Uh, you know, so it's really important that yes, get yourself assessed or have a look at your anatomy, but then also look at your technique. So if your Mm. hips are stopping you, there's a tiny chance it might be anatomy, but there's an even bigger chance that it's because your technique and some muscles are tighter than others. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everyone needs and should know like what their squatting um, biomechanics are like by either filming yourself or having yourself assessed. And like, even for me, I have like long femurs and short tibias and not the greatest ankle mobility. So squatting for me, I need sort of a heel elevation. Um, And it's really important to be able to test that and see what that looks like for you. You know, Mm. we're not powerlifters, so you don't have to get married to this idea of I need to do a low bar back squat. Um, it's just about, you know, again, you want to place tension across the muscle fibers. So what's the most efficient way to do that, um, that you're going to be able to put that stimulus across that, not your hip flexors, not your lower back, all these mm. other sort of things that can come into play. Yeah. Um, so no, you need to be as low as your mobility permits yeah. uh, that is safe for you. And something that I really like um, doing is starting clients on a front squat. I think um, okay. that's really underrated because what it teaches is upward torso. So obviously if they're having a barbell sometimes a goblet squat yeah goblet squat I would have said yeah great so it's anything that promotes um their torso to stay completely upright because there's no cheating with anything front loaded because you just collapse forward whereas Mm. when we've got a bar on our back we can like arch and lean forward and and really use that but I'm like no 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 front squat you've got to really learn to be able to hold the, the weight in front and yep. then get that mobility it highlights any ankle issues or um, any poor mechanics with the squat really well um, yeah. and a lot of us suck at front squats because of that reason it really does expose those limitations yeah and it, as you said it keeps you more upright but then what it also does is force you to break your core as you mentioned but sometimes I even have a counterbalance a bit of a lighter weight yeah. held out in front again that forces the core to come on now people with, who have a butt wink uh, when you go down in your lower back rounds aside from addressing you know foot position knees out or how high they're going if you hold a weight out in front majority of people oh their core switched on okay there's no more butt wink mm-hmm. so if there's a butt wink in your squat it means you, you've got poor um core activation so yeah. yeah try having a weight in front of you or at your chest yeah. And a lot of the time as well, when people put barbells on their backs, it can be their shoulder mobility that's really yep. forcing that as well. So that's why a front squat really helps with that front loading it because anything you put on the back, right? Like lots of posterior chain, but like Danny said, when you're loading from the front, it's also using all those front muscles, your core stabilizing, teaching you proper squat mechanics, which is pushing knees, knees over toes is totally fine. You don't have to keep them back. So Mm. it's, it's again, it just comes down. Exercise selection is really important because if you use exercises that you can't screw up or that are going to make you and force you into the right positions, you know, that's mobility, right? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you've got technique changes or exercise selection, as you said, you've got various activation mobility drills, you know, uh, that we can do, but then yeah, also earning the right as well. So if your upper back is, you can't get a bar on your back, all right, you need to spend time addressing why not. For you, Sherelle, you mentioned you like heel elevated squats. For me, I prefer low bar, of course, yin and yang, uh, knees over toes, for your more front squat and high bar. And then you can still have a little bit of knees over toe for low bar, but it's a more hip dominant. So you'll notice less, uh, but it just depends on your goals, your anatomy, what you want to achieve, what you enjoy doing and what mm. feels good. So, yeah. yeah. And even in general, like, do you need to be low in a squat? You don't even need a squat. Like you can do a lunge if you want. You don't even have to put the barbell on your back. So I think I would actually encourage a lot of unilateral stuff if you're feeling issues in your hips and sort of be able to address any issues from side to side. Oh, 100%. If you're having issues on one side and not the other, doing a bilateral work, so using two sides at a time, is not going to fix the weaker side. Like you need unilateral work. Yeah. Mm. 100%. All right, moving on. So we've got Ella. Uh, She wants to know, what is the difference between an RDL, so Romanian deadlift, and a conventional deadlift? When would you choose one over the other? Fantastic. So last question for the day. Uh, Conventional deadlift, you pick the weight from the ground up. Romanian deadlift, you start with the weight in the air and drop down, but you don't touch the floor. So you kind of just stop Mm. under uh, knee height there, then come back up. So both yeah. brilliant exercises. Uh, when would you choose one of the other, Sherelle? Um, it really does depend. So I like a Romanian deadlift. A lot of beginners, I'll start a Romanian deadlift on mm-hmm. just so you can teach proper hinging because yes. um, that's the main sort of movement that you're going to have in a conventional deadlift. Um, and, you know, a, dead, a conventional deadlift um, is the mo- one of the most complicated exercises that you can do. There's mm-hmm. a lot going on. You've got the upper body, the lower body. Every muscle things. is being used. Every, Every muscle. single muscle. Yeah, it's really taxing neurologically. There's a lot going on. Um, it's predominantly like it's quite used in powerlifting as well. Like, it, you know, you can move a lot of load with a conventional deadlift. So mm. for aesthetic-based goals, I prefer Romanian deadlifts um, as a primary just so we can isolate the glutes and the hamstrings without the nervous system fatigue. Yep. Um, but then for as well, like conventional deadlifts serve a place and time and a purpose. Yep. You also get a lot of um, erector sort of back recruitment as well with um, more so with a conventional than what you will with an RDL. Yep. So it's really hard because program design is complex. So it just mm-hmm. really depends on the primary goal and the person like for me, I don't conventional deadlift. Um, I haven't for a long time uh, just because I get more of a stimulus or a bodybuilding stimulus out of an RDL and I mm-hmm. prefer that. So there's no yep. right or wrong. It's just for who and what for. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still use the barbell. I think it's fun. It's really mm-hmm. cool. It's it's in my environment as well. You know, a lot of the people that I'm around do all these lifts and I love that strong feeling of picking up something that's bloody heavy off the ground. But you have to really earn the right. I wouldn't put a newbie or someone who hasn't, someone who has a weak link in the chain, such as core or their hip hinge is an ideal or their upper, the lat strength is an ideal. I wouldn't put them on a conventional deadlift straight away. There's so much that we need to do before that. Um, As you said earlier, teaching a hip hinge, I use a Romanian deadlift as well, probably first with the kettlebell, unilateral, and then bring in the barbell. And then we move from the ground up. Um, But then again, I use conventional deadlifts as part of my lower back rehab for people. If you pick something Mm. off the ground, it's a conventional deadlift or it might be a sumo Mm. squat. So 
it really depends on the purpose, uh, how heavy you go and how many sets and reps. If you want to be strength or powerlifting, obviously lower um, reps and sets, higher sets, higher weight. Or if it's for rehab, you have, mm. now I'm confusing myself. If it's for rehab, higher reps and lower weight. Um, but if you don't want to do it like Sherelle, mm. that's fine too. So if you do program conventional deadlifts and then I would use RDLs as, as an accessory. Um, but again, it just depends mm. on your goals. Yeah. I use um, in my programming, I use a lot of trap bar. Um, I really love a trap bar. I think it's a great bridging to a conventional. Um, and then when, like I said, you know, as you said, you know, it's going to be earned to get to that yep. conventional and I'll spend 12 weeks like nailing a Romanian deadlift and everything else before you'd even look at a conventional deadlift, to be honest. Um, I sort of believe that people should be able to get a couple of pull-ups as well um, to be able to prove that sort of lat strength and and be strong in the upper body to be able to support that barbell when doing a conventional. Um, And like you said, good core strength. They should be able to get relatively, really strong on a Romanian deadlift before they do a conventional. And then I might even start them on um i really like programming um pause conventional deadlift so pausing just at the mid shin because it's yep. a really good teaching tool to be able to use leg drive yep um but yeah the, that's the difference and when would you choose one over the other it depends it depends for sure i mean yesterday i made a post or whatever time frame this will be so probably two weeks ago by the time we post this <laughs> i made a post on my um deadlift warm-ups and there was a lot in it so you start with the glute activation core activation movement patterning work with a band mm. and then some lat activation and then we start our working set so this is definitely one of the hardest um exercises there so earn the right mm. use it if you need it have fun with it or don't it depends yeah. as you just said yeah yeah, and there's lots of different variations besides an RDL. Like you've mm. got your sumo deadlifts, um, you've got your snatch grip, which I really love using. Um, so there's lots of different so- styles of deadlifts and they all have different purposes and different rep ranges and, and different primary goals. So it comes down to like if you're strength and performance and you thrive off having numbers and results, cool. I think having yep. like some big lifts in there is awesome. You can have both. You can have a hybrid, right? Yep. Um, if you're cool. purely aesthetics and just wanting to focus on really like nailing your hinge pattern or isolating certain muscle groups, then an RDL can be a really good place to start. Yep. Fantastic. All right. That was good. We done? That was, we, we done for the day. Um, we done for the day. <laughs> mic drop. No, don't drop them. They're new. Oh, yeah. They're new and expensive. So I hope you guys <laughs> and girls love them. Um, so as Danny and I were just talking about, you know, we're thinking about doing a comp prep series as of 2021 yeah. um, as we both embark on our comp prep. So, um, you know, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of how many weeks out we'd want to start it. I don't know. Maybe depends how many questions we get and how cooked will be by the end. We're going to be so (laughs) chirpy at the start. And by the end, it will just be pep talk. It'll just be you and I saying, hang in there, hang in there. (laughs) Hang in there, sis. We nearly there. I know. What do you reckon? 20 weeks, 16 weeks, one a week plus our, our normal um, episode. Who knows? Yeah. I reckon at least 20 weeks because it's only 10 episodes. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a mixture of, you know, Q&A style, but then also a mixture of how we're actually going. Because, yeah. yeah, both doing a pro show, pretty exciting stuff. My pro debut. How many pro shows have you done now? You've done the one? Um, no, dude, I've done, I've done, I'm, I'm a veteran. I'm a master. I've oh, done, um, I did Vegas. I did LA. I did Australia. This would be my fourth. Oh, fourth pro show. 
Oh, shit. Sorry for insulting you, mate. Fuck. Oh, <laughs> do you, now do you know up. me? Do I know. You, know you don't even know me. No, that's no. cool. Well, that's exciting because you know what? I know we're going to be doing things a lot differently, um, which is cool as well. So you can see sort of the yin and yang um, version of our compress. So that's cool. Yeah. I think that'll be awesome. I think it's really important to know, like, as I always say, there's like a million ways to skin a dead cat. You know, you can get to the same result. <laughs> The analogy of that gets worse. First, it's like <laughs> there's what I've forgotten even the original because we've butchered it. So you, there's many ways to skin a cat, but now it's gotten there's a million ways, and the cat's already dead apparently. So now you're skinning the dead cat, but there are. <laughs> I um I I get like the odd message of being like your analogies or your bogan accent. I'm like, yeah, that's totally us, Aussie. That is Aussie, 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 Aussie. That's it. <laughs> oh, awesome well we hope everyone um enjoyed this random sort of training episode um if you <laughs> did please give us a five stars on the podcast oh, yeah, app yeah. and also a screenshot uh <laughs> to your instagram story which we absolutely love seeing um so thanks again everyone for tuning in thank you